If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I think that in one of the things that the drama will reveal that might surprise people is this isn't a group of working class rebels who are kind of plotting to bring down the establishment. Robert Catesby and, um, you know, his network are gentlemen, they're members of, you know, the kind of country elite. Um, You know, they're expecting to be power brokers in their own right. Um, You know, this is a kind of high end plot, um, you know, to bring down King and Parliament. That was Hannah Gregg talking about the gunpowder plot. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This Saturday, the 21st of October, BBC One viewers will be treated to the first episode in a major new historical drama series, Gunpowder. Starring Liv Tyler and Kit Harrington, among others, it tells the story of the 1605 plot to blow up the King and Parliament. The historical consultants to the series were Hannah Gregg and John Cooper, both of whom are senior lecturers in early modern history at the University of York. Hannah has consulted on several previous BBC series, including Poldark, while John is an expert on the era that spawned the gunpowder plot. The two historians have co-written a piece for the magazine, exploring some of the biggest debates around the gunpowder plot. And here for the podcast, they shared their thoughts on this iconic episode in English history. Putting the questions to them was our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. For listeners who might not be familiar with the gunpowder plot of 1605, could you perhaps explain the situation in England at the time and the resentments that um, led to the plot? Okay, well, we all know 
bonfire night or the 5th of November as a date that we're very familiar with. But um, I think it's fair to say that most of us have perhaps forgotten some of the complexities and the actual historical realities that lie behind that date. And, you know, as we'll see in the BBC drama, um, you know, on television, actually there's a whole degree of political and religious complexity that's underpinning the story that helps us understand how it is a group of plotters could seek to blow up Parliament. And I think the key element that we'll remember through watching the drama and thinking about the history again is that this isn't the story of just one individual, Guy Fawkes, but a whole group of plotters who came together to try and set up an entirely new kind of constitutional and religious order in at the time. But my colleague John Cooper is really the expert um, in this period. So, John, what do you think was the kind of key behind the plot? What was driving it? Well, I think the way to understand the gunpowder plot is to see it in the context of a whole series of plots that have been uh, against the monarchy really since the Reformation. It's a kind of byproduct of the Reformation whereby Catholics are marginalised and left in a very uh, difficult position in English and British society. And so if you look back 30, 40 years, you have a series of Catholic plots against Elizabeth I as well. And some of those are plausible and some of them are frankly mad trying to a poison the pommel of the saddle of Elizabeth's horse and that kind of thing. The interesting thing about the gunpowder plot um, is that it's a very plausible plot in some ways. It actually comes quite close to succeeding. And I think the Catholic plotters have learned lessons from previous failed Catholic plots. They keep themselves as a very small group and they keep a strict vow of secrecy amongst themselves. And even though it's a very kind of low tech plot, there's nothing um, sort of particularly um, impressive about their planning. Um, it's it comes very very close to succeeding, and they manage to move so many barrels of gunpowder under the uh, essentially under the House of Lords. Um, and the amazing thing is nobody spots this. You know, I mean, it just shows how. Um, security conscious the 17th century Palace of Westminster was by comparison with the modern Palace of Westminster, which is a bit of a fortress. How on earth did these plotters manage to row boatloads of gunpowder across the Thames and then stack it up underneath the House of Lords? It, it does beg a belief, really, but it does come very close actually to being ignited. Part of the work you've done on the drama is advising on the reconstruction of the Palace of Westminster. So could you perhaps give us a sense of what, what the atmosphere would have been like, the hustle and bustle? How would the, how would the plot have kind Kind of played out at that time? Well, I always imagine the old kind of complex of the Palace of Westminster is this warren and teeming body of lots of little buildings of lots of little different dates, a kind of place where you get lost in people coming and going, um, corridors, tunnels, doorways, archways, stairs up and down, and this just sort of mass of, of buildings that have been built up over time. Um, and I think you know, you can imagine in that kind of context, this idea about people moving in shadows and um, sort of, you know, sneaking around corners and things. And it's very different to how we see West, you know, the Houses of Parliament today and the air of Westminster in London, as it would have looked in the early 17th century, it was completely different. Um, and one of the projects that's we've been involved with here at York and that's been led by John is reconstructing the original complex of the kind of Houses of Parliament. Um, so, you know, actually John can navigate around probably blindfolded, I think. You'd know where to put the gunpowder, wouldn't you, John? Well, the funny thing is, whenever I go into the modern Palace of Westminster, I instantly get lost. But if, if I were to be able to navigate my way around the 16th or 17th century Palace of Westminster, that'd be fine because I've got that imprinted on my brain. 
because of this research project that we've been running at the University of York for the last uh, four years. Um, and we've been focusing, as Hannah says, on what was the um, the medieval palace of Westminster and the chapel that became the House of Commons, in fact, rather than the House of Lords. But we've worked out um, a pretty good um, series of digital models of the way that the palace looked in the 16th and 17th centuries, both the interiors um, and some of the exterior um, of those buildings. And it really was a very ramshackle um, collection of buildings with all sorts of undercrofts and cellars. And the amazing thing about the Palace of Westminster is uh, how open to the public it was. I mean, we think of this as being a place of administrators and politicians. In the early 17th century, there were private houses in the Palace of Westminster. There were taverns. In Henry VIII's reign, there was even a, a functioning brothel right within the Palace of Westminster. Just what every palace needs. Absolutely. And so it's in, in a sense, that supplies a context to how it was that Guy Fawkes and his fellow conspirators were able to sneak in and uh, put that gunpowder under the House of Lords. But one of the, the really pleasing things we were able to do is our digital models that academics at York have spent the last four years working on and constructing with great care. We were then able to hand over to the production company of Gunpowder and talk to the art director and actually enable that kind of transfer of information, of academic information to this fantastic BBC series. So hopefully when we see the Palace of Westminster in the series, it will actually be an accurate representation of the Palace of Westminster rather than something that's just made up. And as well as the kind of the geography or the location um, details that you're talking about as historical advisors, what other details do you find yourselves working on with the with the show producers? Well, it can be details big and small, really, like with um, any sort of consultancy work that I do, anything from what a room might look like, what props might be, um, you know, we might see in shot to how might someone feel about something? How might they respond to a piece of action? Um, I think John had quite a nice day on set where he was teaching Liv Tyler how to pray um, <laughs> correctly. Um, <laughs> and I think, John, didn't you test out the throne at one point as well, just to check it was suitably comfortable for a monarch? I did. I have to say that that's strictly not allowed, that kind of thing. But they did let me sit in uh, James VI and First's throne and have my photograph taken as a kind <laughs> of uh, bonus for being on set all day. So I was very excited about that. But in terms of the um, the details that were asked, I mean, they're, they're very different sorts of questions from the historical questions that Hannah and I deal with in our kind of day jobs at the University of York. Um, people are very interested, of course, in etiquette, how people bow, how they pray, how they move around, the relationships between men and women. And so it actually, it really tests our historical powers, I think. I mean, because often when we're lecturing, we're concentrating on other kinds of themes, you know, politics and religion and these very big historical questions. When you go on set, what you need to do is to provide a quick answer to should this person be standing here or there? And Hannah is an old hand at being a historical consultant. This was my first experience of it. And as well as finding it hugely exciting, I just found it fascinating how much um, how much grace the historical uh, consultant is accorded in the sense that filming will stop until you're brought on set. And they'll say, well, is this the right way to bow? Or should this flag be in, in shot or not? And until you say yes or no, filming um, you know, doesn't carry on. And of course, these are hugely um, expensive operations bringing large numbers of people together. So it, you know, it's, it's fascinating the amount of power you have briefly for those few moments <laughs> um, to en uh, enable things to proceed or not. And of course, some of the questions they're asking, actually, we don't know the answers to that. So the, the difference between how you might bow at Henry VIII's court and how you might bow at 
James VI court, if we do know it, it's a very obscure kind of question. But other sorts of questions about how interiors looked, and particularly, as Hannah was saying, about how people prayed and the, the just the importance of the Catholic faith um, to this group of plotters, um, that is something that we were able to comment on in some depth. And it was a, just a fascinating experience. I mean, I've been working as a consultant now for about 10 years on film and television and theatre. And, um, you know, I always feel that my role is to to really to give advice, not to kind of insist on particular things and to try and create conversations about how we can make history, you know, something that's relevant and useful um, for the story that's unfolding um, on screen. And, you know, one of the things I've come to really respect from dramas is the sense in which actually you need to keep an audience engaged with your world that you've created. And if you introduce something that seems very foreign to that world, even if it might be rooted in some kind of historical detail, there's always a risk you might lose the audience. So we're always trying to think about how to create a balance between the highest level of historical information that we have available to us and then the needs of the drama, the, the how it's going to look on screen, what the audience is going to be thinking and feeling at that moment and what they need to keep them hooked into the story. Because at the end of the day, you want to have a good dramatic experience when you see a drama. And I think Gunpowder, for us, it was a really exciting project because... Um, Visually, it's going to look amazing on screen. I know the production designer Grant, Grant Montgomery quite well, and he's a he's a total history buff. He reads very widely, and he absolutely loves historical detail. And his sets and his production designs are just incredible in some of the little small points of detail that he includes. And he always wants his productions, you be able to watch them again and again and see new things every time you see them. So, you know, if you become totally hooked on gunpowder, watch it three times and see how many details Grant Montgomery has put into his set. I always find that when I, you know, have the chance to visit a set is, is to see, you know, a world that you study very closely come to life. And um, I've always been, I've always left a production with new ideas about history and thinking about history in a different in a different way um, because of it, whether it's being in an 18th century theatre or a ball or, you know, on the gunpowder set. Um, it just leaves um, an image in your mind of what the past might have looked like and what it felt to be in that space. But in this case, we also benefited from a particularly good script, I think. The uh, gunpowder script um, was written by somebody who actually has a doctorate in 17th century English history, and that really helps. So the language was right, I think. I mean, obviously, we read the scripts um, before filming began. And I think Hannah and I made a, suggested a couple of tiny adjustments which were taken up. But the way that people speak to each other, it, it feels right for the 17th century. But it's not archaic, I think. I mean, it's a, it's a great mixture between um, a genuine historical drama, but with some contemporary resonances, I think. And I think people watching this production on the television, they won't be seeing it purely as a historical drama, as a piece of fiction. They'll be making all sorts of connections to things that we're thinking about today. You mentioned uh, Liv Tyler's character, and I'd love to go back to her, but if we could first um, perhaps talk about Robert Catesby, because although um, Guy Fawkes is the man who's most associated with the plot today, uh, the main player in the BBC drama is Robert Catesby, who's played by Game of Thrones actor Kit Harington, who happens to be a descendant, I think, of Catesby. So could you perhaps um, share with our listeners who Catesby was? I think this brings up one of the actual truths um, of the gunpowder plot that, of course, we remember it as the bonfire um, that was nearly created by Guy Fawkes. But Guy Fawkes, in a sense, he was the scapegoat for the whole plot. He's the person that we remember 
because he was presented as being the ringleader by government propaganda after the time. And so he's become um, the great uh, sort of focus of the, the gunpowder plot, the bonfire night myth. And that's why we um, burn an, Im an image or an effigy of Guy Fawkes uh, to this day. Of course, they don't do that in York because he's a local boy here. But Guy Fawkes was just the man, really, who was going to light the fuse. I mean, he's, he's a soldier. And the reason that he's chosen to enter this space below the House of Lords and light that fuse is because nobody knows who he was. He's a nobody in English society because he's not particularly wealthy. He spent most of his life abroad and he's he's a classic spy in that regard. It's actually Robert Catesby, who's played by Kit Harrington in the drama, who's much more of an organiser um, of this plot um, and his um, close friend and relative Thomas Winter. And these are the men who've got the local connections in English society. They've got the social standing to actually draw a plot around them to contact, as they hope, the local gentry to ride to London once Parliament has been obliterated. Because, of course, if Parliament actually had been blown up, that would only be part of the story. There would then have to be a rebellion following that. And it's Robert Catesby, the Kit Harrington character, and Thomas Winter, who would have rallied the troops and led that cavalry charge on London. But actually, I don't get the impression that their plans are, are very well developed. Uh, and there's a good deal of um, disorganisation and a good deal of argument amongst the plotters, as there tends to be amongst any of these plots against Elizabeth I as well as against James I. They're, they're never terribly clear about what the outcome of the plot is going to be, because, of course, they've had to plan for everything in secret. And I think that in one of the things that the drama will reveal that might surprise people is this is this isn't a group of working class rebels who are kind of plotting to bring down the establishment. Robert Catesby and, um, you know, his network, a gentleman, they're members of, you know, the kind of country elite. Um, you know, they're expecting to be power brokers in their own right. Um, you know, this is a kind of high end plot, um, you know, to bring down King and Parliament. It's not a sort of behind closed doors, working class rebellion that we might sometimes think of in terms of these kind of historical um, moments. But as Eleanor mentions, um, Kit Harrington is related to Catesby. And I think he really feels this. I mean, one of the first things we did, Hannah and I, after reading the script is um, go to the headquarters of the production company and sit down um, with Kit Harrington and talk to him about the script and talk to him about his role and about, um, you know, life in early 17th century London and so on. And this is something he mentioned to us, you know, this this is a relative of mine. And he clearly feels that connection quite strongly, which I think um, really adds a certain sharpness to his portrayal of the character. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. 
This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The man himself, Guy Fawkes, is at the centre of the celebrations today. Um, but what do we know about his motivations and, and the background that led him to be the, the man who was um, to be in charge of the explosives? Well, we know that he was born in York, just up the road from where we're having this conversation now, actually, and um, went to school in York. Um, uh, so here at York, we have quite a kind of, you know, relationship with Guy Fawkes. Well, there's something pretty mysterious about Guy Fawkes, in fact, because... The reason that the family were in York um, is Guy Fawkes' father was an official in the service essentially of York Minster. Um, he's a Church of England official. Now that suggests that Guy Fawkes came from a Protestant family or at least a conformist family. Um, but what happens is his father dies, his mother remarries and she marries uh, quite a strong Catholic. And so at a very impressionable age, the young guy aged about nine or 10, imbibes this new kind of Catholicism, which is speaking with a new, more radical accent, I think, and where talk of, of the Catholic underground, but also talk of treason and plot is beginning to circulate. But Guy Fawkes has got very little money, um, and so he needs to make a living. And the way he makes his living is as a soldier. And uh, the only wars to be fought were on the continent, and he actually takes the pay um, of Catholic Spain, and that means he's fighting in a Catholic army. And I think, I mean, I'm reluctant to use the word radicalised, but if we do want to use that word, then that's probably where it happens. He um, he kind of acquires this very uh, radical edge to his Catholicism. And by the time that he comes back to England, um, as I said earlier, unknown to the English authorities, he not only has the military know-how, the military expertise, but he's got the kind of ideology where he's not worried, actually, about assassinating the monarch. He's not worried about assassinating um, all the members of parliament. Essentially, this is something he wants to bring on, to bring on a Catholic revolution. Guy Fawkes is a genuine Catholic revolutionary. He's, I mean, he is, a, he is a fascinating, fascinating character, really, in terms of his life story, because, you know, this sense of him being born a Protestant in the shadows of York Minster, actually, wasn't he? And then over the course of his lifetime, becomes a Catholic, we think through the influence of his stepfather, but then becomes a Catholic soldier fighting abroad in the interests of a different state in Catholic Spain, and then becomes the sort of hired guy to light the fuse for the gunpowder plot. He has this intriguing background that tells us something about the relationship between different religious ideas the relationship between different countries and how these networks actually operated at the time. I think that Guy Fawkes is an outsider, actually. Um, he's an outsider in the sense that he's a Catholic, but he's also an outsider in the sense that he's he's grown up in exile. He's grown up fighting in the forces of Catholic Spain. And so when he comes back to England, he's not actually part of that natural gentry Catholic network of people like um, Robert Catesby and Thomas Winter. And I don't 
get the sense that they regard Guy Fawkes himself with particular affection, actually. I think that Catesby and Winter, the two plot leaders, are, are very um, strong in their friendship. And certainly that comes out in the BBC drama. Guy Fawkes, essentially, he's hired to be the man with a fuse. He's the kind of mysterious, doer, sort of radical Catholic who's prepared to be the person who actually ignites that gunpowder and possibly to be the person who actually goes up in smoke with that gunpowder whilst Catesby and Winter themselves are many miles away trying to organise a Catholic rebellion in the English provinces to ride down to London, then to kind of take advantage of the aftermath of that catastrophic explosion. And, and also, presumably, because he's been abroad, he's sort of in the shadows. He's not under surveillance in the same way that, that Thomas Winter and Robert Catesby would be by the English state. He's sort of someone who can move more freely. Is that right? So far as we know, Guy Fawkes is unknown to the English Secret Service um, before he attempts to light that fuse. Whereas other members of the plot were known to the English Secret Service because they've been involved in low-level Catholic activity um, up until this point. So Catesby and Winter are on the fringes um, of a rebellion, well, a so-called rebellion against Elizabeth I in 1601. It's not a Catholic rebellion, it's a rebellion of the Earl of Essex, um, but it is an aristocratic protest. And clearly Catesby has been hoping for a long time that through some act of protest, through some act of revolt, that he will be able to bring the plight of English Catholics to the notice of the authorities. And this also helps to explain the timing of the gunpowder plot, because of course Elizabeth I dies in 1603. We have a new king, King James VI of Scots becomes King James I of England. And although James has been raised a strong Protestant, he also talks the language of religious toleration. And Catholics in 1603 and 1604 are full of hope. They think that James will actually let them worship, if not in public, then at least worship without that knock on the door from the Secret Service. But those hopes are dashed. And it's when those hopes are dashed that this small cadre of Catholic plotters comes together and says, right, clearly things are never going to improve. The monarchy is never going to let Catholicism flourish. We're going to have to take our own action and, and radical action at that. There were 13 plotters in all. And what was the kind of relationship? How was this gang formed? How would they have kept in contact? How would they have been plotting? There was already quite a well-established Catholic underground um, in the city of London um, by 1605 with connections leading out into the provinces, into areas of Catholicism in the English shires. And this seems to be what these Catholic families use to communicate. So they have their own network um, of couriers, their own network of spies, in a sense, um, to communicate with each other. Um, in distinction to the uh, secret services of people like um, Robert Cecil. But one of the very interesting things that particularly struck Hannah and I, which he's brought out in the drama, is the role of women in this network. And thanks to the work of historians like Jesse Childs, we now know a lot more about how women were absolutely at the centre of the fulcrum of the Catholic faith in England in the late 16th and early 17th century. And again, it's a bit like the story of Guy Fawkes. One of the reasons that they can do this is that they're below the radar. The government isn't particularly interested in picking up women. And this empowers them to some extent to maintain Catholic safe houses, which famously here in the city of York, um, uh, they did with Jesuit priests, uh, with Margaret Clitheroe uh, running um, safe houses. And you see the same sort of network operating, um, supporting Jesuits and supporting the plotters in the gunpowder plot era. 
And I suppose that that role of women is um, shown in the drama, in the character of Anne Vaux, who um, is played by Liv Tyler. What can you tell us about um, the real-life character? Well, the real-life Anne Vaux, actually, we think she was called Anne Vaux, rhyming with Vaux. But, of course, the reason we couldn't call her Anne Vaux is because people would mix up Vaux and Vaux on screen. (laughs) So we we think it's the the way that the family would pronounce it now would actually be Vaux. But she's um, a typical um, English gentlewoman of high social status um, with money, with some education, um, but with a deep Catholic piety. Um, And, you know, she's representative of this group of of Catholic gentlewomen who uh, are spread out across England, who do maintain this network of safe houses for Catholic priests to move around um, and celebrate the Mass. And so when we were working with Liv Tyler, this was one of the things that um, we were able to talk to her about to explain some of the uh, the context of the late 16th and early 17th century hunted community of Catholics and explain the prominent role of women within this community. But also, as Hannah said earlier, explain um, basic stuff like, um, like how to pray. Um, and of course, prayers were in Latin, uh, Catholic prayers were in Latin in this period, which uh, required us to do some last minute searching for appropriate Latin prayers and then required members of the company to do some last minute learning of appropriate Catholic prayers. So one of the bizarrest days I spent on set is having them all kneeling in front of me, uh, being taught uh, how to pray in the style of, uh, of Catholics in the early 17th century, which is something I've never had to do before. And I imagine I will never have to do again, but it was, it was really fascinating. One of the reasons that women are so central to this story and actually to the kind of religious history of the time is because, you know, to to be a Catholic at the time, you were primarily worshipping at home. Mass was celebrated at home um, in secret. Um, And so women were the gatekeepers of that environment. They were basically managing secret churches within their own properties. Um, And, you know, they used domestic accoutrements to double in for um, things that might be used in mass. You had to hide things very quickly. Um, and that put women right at the centre and the heart of this sort of world as the domestic managers and the gatekeepers. Um, and also the people who are masking everything, both the um, implements that you might need that betrayed the fact that you are the Catholic faith, but also looking after and keeping safe the priests who are essential to that network. And were there any kind of artefacts or, or things that used in the show that were examples of how their faith would have been hidden? We don't want to give away too many plot spoilers, but I think the opening scenes should be quite interesting. Okay, excellent. Um, and in the same vein, without obviously giving away too much of the drama intention, um, how just how close did this plot come to succeeding? How how close are we talking? Well, at one level, the gunpowder plot looks pretty improbable. I mean, it's it's low technology getting 36 massive barrels of gunpowder into the Palace of Westminster, rode across the Thames and carted in and stuffed underneath the House of Lords. You know, you wouldn't think that a plot of that sort um, would have any chance of success. But it does actually come uh, surprisingly close to success. And in fact, the sellers are searched. And believe it or not, you know, Fawkes is spotted there and these barrels of gunpowder are spotted there and nobody asks any questions because the undercrofts and the cellars of the Palace of Westminster um, could be rented out for money. So there are other cellars full of barrels of stuff that are actually for sale. And it's only when a second search is ordered um, by the king himself 
uh, on a tip-off from a renegade member of the Catholic community who's reported um, some sort of tremors on the kind of web, the Catholic underground web in London, reported them direct to the king, that the king gets suspicious and orders a second search of the cellar underneath the old House of Lords. And then somebody thinks, well, actually, what's in these barrels? And they open up one of those 36 barrels and find it's stuffed with uh, with gunpowder. And we're talking about really big barrels of gunpowder as well. So the sort of thing that would have required several men to move, um, big carts to move them in. So in a sense, they must have moved this gunpowder in, in sight of other people. And this is this is the extraordinary thing. But we're talking about nearly a tonne. But I think if you were going to write a headline about it today, you'd say they were a spark away from success because it was all set up. It was all ready to go. It just needed a flame to ignite it. And I think it was only uncovered on the morning of the actual day in which it would have been lit. Isn't that right? In the early hours of the morning before. That's right. And it, I mean, what they're trying to do, what the plotters are trying to do is they're trying to choose a moment in the parliamentary calendar when as many prominent people will be gathered together um, in one place as possible. And that's why the the timing of this is so critical, because they're going for the state opening of Parliament. Now, as you know from uh, your television screens, when you see the Queen opening Parliament now, you have the entire political establishment gathered in one place. Um, And so this is what the gunpowder plotters are going for. They're going to try and assassinate the King, um, all of the nobility, uh, most of the House of Commons who would have been watching, probably the Prince of Wales as well, um, all in one massive, one-tonne, almighty explosion of gunpowder. And tests have been done, modern tests on that gunpowder, um, and would have proved that it would have um, blown the Palace of Westminster completely to smithereens. You know, if, if they actually had managed to ignite one of those barrels... Um, it would have it would have worked. The interesting question is where Guy Fawkes would have been at that point, whether where he, he would have presumably um, you know lit the fuse and then run like mad, or whether he would have martyred himself as part of this um, great operation. But given that this would have wiped out almost the entire British political establishment, who would have ruled after that? And this is a very interesting question. And, and what we just get some hints in the state papers that record the investigation and the interrogations of Guy Fawkes after the event um, that suggest that actually what the Catholic plotters would have done is carry on with monarchy. Of course, you'd you'd still have had to have a monarchy, but actually declare a kind of Catholic regency for the young princess Elizabeth. So we would actually have had the rule of a woman, but surrounded um, by a kind of Catholic regime. So she'd be nothing more than a puppet queen. How do we get from this assassination attempt to... um the celebrations today with bonfires and, and fireworks and, and sparklers, you know, how did that transition happen? The transition from Guy Fawkes and 5th of November 1605 to our modern bonfire night is a very interesting one. Um, and what there seems to be some context for this. So um, English people were already um, lighting bonfires, setting off fireworks, feasting for certain big days in the calendar. So they were celebrating Queen Elizabeth I's Succession Day from the 1570s onwards. And they celebrate the defeat of the Spanish Armada as well in similar ways in 1588. And so when this this plot is uncovered, when it's, you know, as it were, broken by the Secret Service, even though it comes so close to to success, this is an absolutely sensational story. And it's, it's sold to Londoners and people all over the country in a whole series of pamphlets. 
it becomes a kind of propaganda victory and the government makes as much of it as it can. So it encourages people to celebrate and they're celebrating the deliverance of England and they're also sort of celebrating Protestantism to some extent. But then as the anti-Catholicism gathers um, even, even more dramatic pace in the early 17th century, um, these celebrations carry on. And in some ways, the original meaning of those celebrations is progressively forgotten and they acquire new cultural meanings. I mean, cultural historians are very interested in this kind of thing, but they get um, bound up with the popish plot in the late 17th century. They get caught up with um, new waves of anti-Catholicism in the 18th century and the 19th century when we have waves of, of Catholic Irish immigrants coming over to England. So there are all of these events in subsequent English and British history that give um, kind of new life to bonfire celebrations. And they're also exported to America, interestingly, in the 17th century. So when English colonists um, go over to uh, Boston and Philadelphia in the 17th century, they take their memory of gunpowder plot, powder treason day with them. And there's some evidence that um, those celebrations um, between rival gangs of gunpowder treason day um, play, um, play a part in the uh, popular riots and popular celebrations that actually lead up to the American Revolution, the Declaration of Independence. So it's one of those very interesting examples of how an English folk tradition actually um, weaves its way into uh, the American Revolution. But I think bonfire celebrations have changed quite a lot and they've changed in my lifetime. I mean, I'm a child of the 80s. And if I, I look back, I can remember, um, you know, persuading my dad to buy an overpriced box of standard fireworks, which we would set off in the garden. We would light a bonfire. We would um, meet up with neighbours. I think that sort of thing is becoming increasingly rare, actually. Um, people are forgetting who Guy Fawkes was. So we we less often call it Guy Fawkes night now. I think it becomes a bonfire night. And I can remember boys in the street when I was growing up, and this was in the 1980s, not the 1940s, still making guys <laughs> and saying penny for the guy um, and using it essentially to beg for money. Um, but again, I mean, it's been a very long time since I've seen, um, you know, boys making a guy and parading it on a cart around the street. And I'm part of the Blue Peter generation, I suppose. And I can remember that every November, Blue Peter would broadcast careful advice about people having Guy Fawkes parties in their back gardens. And, you know, you learn this kind of litany to recite. Keep your fireworks in a tin. Never return to a lit firework. Never throw fireworks. And you would quote this to your parents. But again, that moves, bonfire celebrations move from back gardens and individual acts of commemoration, if that's what people are commemorating, to big civic bonfires. You know, it's always fascinating how so many of our traditions and commemorative moments sort of become detached from the events from which they originated. And, you know, our celebrations around bonfire night today, so few of us sort of think about the historical story behind it all. And I think few of us would think when we're standing around a bonfire watching fireworks or drinking bovril or whatever it is we do, eating treacle toffee, that actually that started with a kind of a celebration of the failure of a plot against the state. It was a sort of celebration of the survival of Protestantism against a Catholic challenge. It was the survival of the crown and the court and the parliament against an attempt to, um, you know, kind of completely um, wipe the slate clean and 
blow up Parliament and start again. And I don't think those thoughts really cross our minds when we're going ooh and ah over um, fireworks today. But that is the origin of the story. But then, of course, it becomes something else now. It becomes about community event. It becomes about lighting up the night sky in the winter with our fireworks, staying nice and warm, looking forward to Christmas um, and so many other things attached to it now. That was Hannah Gregg and John Cooper. The three-part series Gunpowder begins this Saturday, the 21st of October, at 9.10pm on BBC One. And do look out for the piece by Hannah and John in the November issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Hannah Gregg is also one of the speakers at our York History Weekend, taking place from the 24th to 26th of November. For tickets and more information, please visit historyweekend.com. OK, well, that's about all for today, but please do listen in again on Monday when we'll be talking about the death of Stalin. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.